So we're going to get into our message to, together this Sunday, and it is about Easter. And, you know, this past week has been uh, one of the most important weeks for churches throughout the world um, uh, as we... Uh, all right, here. I'm going to need some pro presenter help from somebody up here. Somebody, if somebody could come on up here. Uh, but this is a really, really important week for us. Uh, for many churches around the world, because many churches celebrate this week as Holy Week, starting last Sunday with Palm Sunday, uh, the day when Jesus entered into Jerusalem, and it was the final week of his ministry in Jerusalem before going to the cross on Friday, uh, where he was uh, crucified for our sins, for the sins of all those who would believe in him, and then he rose again on the third day, on Sunday, which we remember today the day of his resurrection. So today caps an incredibly important week for many churches around the world as we remember the events of that final week in Jerusalem when Jesus was doing ministry. But I would also want to say that this really important week for you as well, even if you're not a Christian, and again, in, you know, for whatever reason that you're here this morning, I think what the Bible has to say about Easter applies to you as well. In fact, there's an invitation for you here in the scriptures this morning, and I, I think it's, it's super important as well, and I, and I hope that you will uh, maybe discover that or agree with that by the end of the message today. So today we're going to be looking in the Bible from the book of Acts. Now, the Bible is the most important book ever written. Uh, we believe that as Christians. Why? Because God wrote this book. God wrote this book through human authors over thousands of years. Thank you so much, Gabe. Thank you. Uh, just like we may take a pen and you may write with it whatever you want to write, God wrote the Bible through human authors. The Holy Spirit was working in these human authors to give us his divine word that is actually the words of God to us. So um, it is the most important book for Christians, the most important book that we believe was ever written. And we're going to be looking at it today from the book of Acts, chapter 17, verses 16 to 34. Now, just a little bit of background about what's going on here. It's a really interesting passage because here we find Paul, who wrote the majority of the New Testament, much of the New Testament, if not the majority of the New Testament, um, who was a former Jewish religious leader who became a follower of Jesus, who wrote the majority of the New Testament, in Athens, we find him in Athens addressing Greek philosophers. Now, the, in, in Athens, it was the, you know, the, the home of Aristotle, Socrates, Plato, the, the Greek philosophical world, and, and we see this interaction of things going on here that is so, so fascinating, right? It's like the, like the crossover that, that we've all been waiting for. Maybe, maybe you haven't been waiting for, but I find it really interesting, this crossover that of, you know, what is this former Jewish religious leader turned Christian and these Athenian heavyweights, what are they going to talk about? It's like... Um, like seeing the Avengers, you know, and having the X-Men show up, right? Like, when is that going to happen? Come on, it's all marvels, one universe. When is this finally going to happen? Here we see this interaction of these heavyweights and, and, and their discussion here. So I think it's really fascinating. Um, one of the most prolific Christian evangelists of his time meets the foremost thinkers of the Western world at that time. And I, and I think this has a lot to say to us today, being here in the Bay Area, you know, in some ways, it's kind of similar, right? The Bible meets the Bay Area. The Bible, the Word of God, um, what does it have to say to us here in the Bay Area, this place that is considered 
one of the foremost centers of intellectualism, certainly of technological advancement in the world. And I think um, there's a lot of similarities here. And, and so I think there's a lot that we can learn from this or take away as well. So I'm going to read through this passage, and then, and then we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about it. So I'm going to go from 16 all the way through 34. It says, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, you may remember this from Philosophy 101, the, um, you know, the Epicureans that were much more into kind of pleasure, and, and uh, that's how the gods live, so we want to live that way. The Stoics were more about this pantheistic worldview of, of being free from the influences and passions of this world. Two different philosophies, but both active in Athens and Greco-Roman society at the time. So some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. These times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is the word of God. Let's go back up here to the beginning here. So um, what's happening here? Paul was in Athens and waiting for his companions. 
And uh, being Paul, he didn't just sit around and, and uh, you know, go on a tour of, of Athens and just enjoy himself while he was waiting. But he walked around to, to observe and to understand the city. And he saw many different idols there, many different altars to all of these different gods and, and whatnot. And as he was there, given that the Holy Spirit was within him, he went down and he began to tell people about Jesus in the marketplace. This is the, the place where people came and they bought stuff and they did their shopping and where you know the, the city markets were. And it was very common actually in this place for people to get up and to begin to, to speak. Now, you know, nowadays we, we know, you know people are there, street, for, uh, street performers and trying to earn some money, but there were people there who gave speeches. Oratory was an incredibly important thing in their culture, and people would give speeches. Some people would come and, and tout their own philosophies and try to get a hearing and try to get disciples and people who wanted to learn from them. Paul was in the marketplace, and he began to preach about the Lord Jesus Christ. And then so some of these philosophers wanted to hear more about what he had to say because it was new. They hadn't heard about this Jesus or resurrection or anything like that. So they invited him to a very prestigious place, to the Areopagus, right? If you've been to Athens, maybe you've been to there. And they, they took him there because they wanted to hear more about what he had to say. Now, the thing is, that's very interesting about these people that describes them, and I think can be really, really relevant for us in our day as well, is that it says that all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Nothing except telling or hearing something new. These were people who just spent all day listening to the latest philosophies or news and, and different things that were going on. They spent all day talking about these things, listening to these things. And when Paul came into town, they're like, oh, that's new. Let's have him come and talk to us. And, and we want to hear what it is that he has to say. And I, and I think this, this again... Athens 2,000 years ago in the Bay Area, I think there's more in common than, than at first meets the eye. I think this describes our current milieu really, really well because we are a people who are addicted and hooked on everything new, on, on telling and hearing something new. Isn't that true? How much of our day do we spend doing that? Whether it's the, the newest videos, right, on, on TikTok and and you're scrolling through them one at a time, right? And before you know it, an hour has gone by. You generally don't go back and watch old videos, right? Unless they're really, really good. You watch new ones. You scroll through. You want to see the newest thing. Maybe you spend time on Twitter keeping up with, you know, the people that you follow. And what new tweets did they post out today? Maybe some of you spend a lot of time reading the news because you want to understand what's going on around the world and what's happening in America, what's happening internationally, what's happening with the war in Ukraine, what's happening with politics, and you're reading the news constantly. Some of you spend a good amount of time every day just following your friends on social media or maybe celebrities or famous people that you know. We're, we're so into things that are new. What's new? What's happening we spend an incredible amount of time doing that. Uh, according to a recent survey by Nielsen, uh, Gen Z and millennials, and I picked them because I know that's the majority of the people here, sorry to leave out any boomers, Gen Xers like myself and others, but for those between the ages of 18 and 34 living in urban areas of the United States, spend an average of three hours and 46 minutes per day 
on their smartphones. Now, I know there are some of you in there thinking like, oh, that's low. <laughs> there, there were a few of you, right? I'm not going to make you raise your hand. There are some of you thinking, that's, that's kind of low. Where do they get these stats? But this figure doesn't include time spent on other devices, like your laptop, desktop computers, tablets, or time spent for work or school that you spend on the internet for that. So this is all like your free time, right? And uh, on social media, your messaging apps, your entertainment apps. Now, if you think about that, if you, if you break that down, you know, down into five days, that's like over four hours a day. That's half a work day. <laughs> that's half a work day just scrolling and reading about new things, things that are new. I don't know how you have time to do anything else. You wake up, you go to work, you come back, you eat, you're on social media, you're on the news, you're watching Netflix or something, and then you go to bed. That's like most of our free time that we have. We all know how many articles there have been about how addicted we've become to this, um, these uh, uh, just stimuli coming into us from all of these things that are new. And, and I think, you know, things don't change, right? The Athenians, they just wanted to hear about the newest things. We also spend so much time seeking after the things that are new. But here's the question. Here's the upshot of all this and the thing that I think we really need to consider. You may be keeping up with everything new, but the more important question is, are you actually pursuing what's important? And I think that that's a really important question. We can spend so much time just on our feeds, right? They're called feeds for a reason. They're just constantly shoveling things into you. We spend so much time on things that are new, but how much time do we spend pursuing the things that are actually important? Or asking the question, what is really important in life? And, and so this, this leads to a certain condition in our heart. This constant stimulation, this constant addiction to things that are new and being distracted rather than focusing on things that are important or asking the more important questions, it leads to a certain condition in our heart. Paul points this condition out. He said, and, and this is masterful how he does this, when he talks in the Areopagus, he says to them, you know, when I was walking around your city, I noticed that you're a very religious people. You have these altars to all these different gods, right? And you think about all the gods of Mount Olympus, and there are these altars and temples and, and, and idols and statues to all these different gods, and Zeus and Hermes and Athena and, and maybe gods of the, the local regions as well that other people brought over there. There were so many gods everywhere being um, symbolized in these temples and altars. But he said, I saw a particular altar and had an inscription to the unknown God. There was some altar that he found. There was a plaque on it, and it said, to the unknown God. And I think that's, that's really, really interesting. Because for, for a place that had gods of everything, gods of fertility, gods of war, gods of pleasure, gods of rain, god of every, you can think about it, gods of everything, every god you can imagine that's there, yet they still needed this altar, one that said, to the unknown God. And, and what Paul is saying to them, I believe here, is what he's saying to them is, you know, you have all these gods, you keep up with everything that's new, you're the center of, of culture in this Greco-Roman world, 
But still, you have this altar to an unknown God. At the end of the day, you still feel like in your heart there's something missing, don't you? There's still something missing. You got all this, but you still have this altar to an unknown God. You realize it, don't you? There's something missing in your life. There's something missing in your heart. And Paul says, let me tell you what that is, what you're missing. And I think that's such, again, a good description of today. We have everything, don't we? We have so much. The average, the way I think about it is that the average American, I, I feel today, is richer than kings of the past. I mean, the things that we have and that we can experience are just absolutely mind-blowing. We have instant communication with people on the other side of the world. Kings of the ancient days, they're kings, but what do they do? Send the carrier pigeon. (laughs) Flies off. Has anybody heard from my cousin Jeremy yet? No, sir, it's only been three weeks. And the pigeon may have died. Send another one. We have modern transportation. We could get in a jet and fly to the other side of the world in like 12 hours. Kings in the ancient days, I don't care how nice that horse and that wagon, that buggy, whatever it was, those roads were uh, potholes, you name it. No, I'll take economy. (laughs) I'll take economy class. (laughs) Flying around the world rather than your king's chariot or whatever it is. We have climate control. (laughs) We control the weather around us. When it's 100 degrees outside, we can feel like it's 65 inside if we want to. Entertainment? We have Netflix and whatever videos and whatever you want. You know what kings of the old days had? Bring in the jester. <laughs> no, not him. The funny one. Him again, sir? Yes, him again. <laughs> Until you find me some other entertainment. Man, we are, we are richer. We have more than the kings of ancient days. We are, I really believe this. We are richer than all the... You know, sometimes my wife, Christine, she would ask me, honey, she asked me this every once in a while, if you could live in any time period throughout history, what time period would you live in? And her answer is kind of like the, I think, late 1800s, Jane Austen, kind of like, you know, that type of feel, whatever it is. For me, my answer is always now. <laughs> Every single time. Now. <laughs> you know that old Mr. Darcy and Jane Austen feels real nice and romantic, but you know what dental hygiene was like back then? Do you have any idea? It's, it's not good. Not good. You know, if you needed surgery... There was no anesthesia. You know, game over. (laughs) Game over. Now. Now I'll be a pauper today than a king back then. Um, we're, we're, We're so rich. We're so connected more than ever before. We have so much. But at the same time, why is it then that when we look at, for example, all the statistics about mental health, it feels like things are going down and down and down. Um, Anxiety. In 2019, 28.2% of Gen Z adults reported experiencing an anxiety disorder in the past year, and 25.1% of millennials reported the same. This was in 2019. This was pre-COVID. I can't even imagine during COVID. We're worried about so many things. Today, people are worried about losing their jobs because of the recession, if we're in a recession. Worried about losing their jobs to, to AI. I picked the right job, at least for a while. Worried about hyperinflation, worried about 
war. I mean, politics, right? We read articles about, is civil war possible in America, in our country? Like crazy things that we couldn't imagine before. There are all these things that make us worried and anxious or, you know, will I ever get married? Will I meet somebody? Will I have a family? Will my job take me where I want it to go? We're so anxious nowadays. We're more and more depressed. In 2019 as well, 19.4% of Gen Z reported experiencing a major depressive episode in the year, and 16.1% of millennials reported the same thing. Loneliness. We're more lonely. A study by Cigna in 2018, again, 2018, almost half of Americans feel lonely or isolated, and it's only getting worse. And the factors are things like social media, longer working hours, increased mobility. All of these things have made us more lonely. And social media, as connected as we may seem, it creates a false sense of connectedness. And while working more and more mobility moving all around makes it harder for us to form close relationships, people are more lonely than they were before. And today, suicide is actually the second leading cause of death for young people between the ages of 10 and 34. That rate has increased by 56%, more than half, over the past decade. If we are richer than ever before, if we are more connected than ever before, why is it that we feel worse than, at least in my lifetime, in what I hear and what I see, why does it seem like we feel worse than ever before? So what do we do? What do we do? We, we feel like something's missing. Something's missing. Something is making me feel this way. So what do we do? What do we, we look for it. We go out and we look for it, right? Maybe in, in, in a romantic relationship where we think through a boyfriend or a girlfriend or through getting married, that's going to fix it. Or we think maybe it's my friends. My friends aren't good enough. I'm going to go out and find new friends and, and get a fresh start. And maybe that will change it. Or maybe it's my job and career and I picked the wrong thing. Why didn't I pick software instead of hardware? Man, cause, you know, go back to boot camp or pivot in my, my work and my career and do something different. Maybe that'll fix it. Or maybe I just need to go out there and have different experiences in this world. Go enjoy myself, and maybe that will fix it. Even Christians as well. We can struggle with this too. Fill in the blank of this sentence. My life is not complete unless. Brothers and sisters, if there's anything that you put in there aside from more of God in your life, aside from having God in your life, then this is something we're in danger of falling back into as well. Friends, we are indeed missing something in our lives. But it is not any of these other things that I just mentioned. Those are not the solutions. Paul tells the Athenians what they are missing. Look what he says to them here. In verse 26, he says, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. What is Paul saying here? This is, this is mind-blowing. Paul says that God made humanity. Humanity was made not by all these different gods, but one God. He made heaven and earth. He made mankind, and he placed them all over the earth he determined their allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. He's saying that God determined where people would live 
when they would live, where they should live. He determined all of this. He determined that for you and for me as well. God knew where every person would live and when they would live. And he's determined this before anyone was even born. Now, the the amazing thing about this is it means your life is not an accident. That's the upshot of this. Your life is not an accident. Your life does indeed have meaning. God knew you would be alive during this time. God knew that you would be born where you were born. And by extension, I think he knew that you would be here now if you're not from the Bay Area. He knew your race and your ethnicity. He determined that. He determined who your parents would be. He determined all of your life. There is meaning to your life. You are not an accident, regardless of what some people may say. Even being here this morning, I believe, is not by chance. There is a purpose in God for you. Now, Christians, we all take this as old hat, but if you're an atheist, if you don't believe in God, I would argue that purpose can be elusive. Purpose can be really elusive because if there is no God, you can't claim that there is objective purpose in this universe. You can claim to make your own purpose, which is what many people say, but by definition, that purpose is subjective, it's relative, and and some would argue actually meaningless and not purposeful at all. Take somebody, one of the most famous people on Team Atheist, Richard Dawkins, who you may have heard of. He said this, there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pointless indifference. We are machines for propagating DNA. It is every living object's sole reason for being. I heard he's great at parties. He's just so much fun. I would argue that existing, based on what he's saying, existing for the sheer sake of propagating further existence really isn't much of an existence at all. Um, Albert Camus, the philosopher, in his book, The Myth of Sisyphus, takes this line of thinking to its logical conclusion. He wrote this in his book, there is but one truly serious philosophical problem, and that is suicide. Judging whether life is or is not worth living amounts to answering the fundamental question of philosophy. And what Camus is saying is he's saying, if life has no purpose, really the suicide is a legitimate question. Why bother? Why bother living? There's no point to it. That's really the question that we should really be thinking about. But Paul is saying, no, your life has purpose. Your life is not an accident. It's not a cosmic accident. We didn't come out of the primordial ooze and the sludge or whatnot. God made us for a purpose and with a design. And, and he goes on and he says, look, this is so fascinating. He says this. He says that you know this. He says you know this. He says everybody knows this. He said God made everybody, put them everywhere in their time, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us. 
What is Paul saying here? He's saying that there is a spark within you. There is something that, that, that says to you, life is meaningful. There's a reason for my existence. And he says, that's from God. Because God made you. And, and, and actually, God's desire is, his hope is that you would feel your way towards him and hopefully find him. This, this feel, it's like the, the idea, um, the same word is in uh, Homer's Odyssey when, when Odysseus, my namesake there, uh, blinds the Cyclops and the Cyclops is looking for Odysseus and his men and it says that he, he would feel for them. He would be groping around looking for them, trying to find them. And Paul says that that's, that's what God, what he's put in our heart, this desire of looking for something more. And, and, and if you think it's in a boyfriend or a girlfriend or money or success, you're, you're, you're looking in the wrong places. God is calling and hoping that you will realize that it's him that you are missing and that you need. That, even that sense of like, man, isn't there more to life? I believe that that's God. God calling to you, putting something in your heart to realize that. Uh, I, I love one of my favorite um, you know, I, I think this is a great illustration of this. A great illustration is Data from Star Trek, The Next Generation. Anybody? I don't know if you, okay, I'm just always dating myself here, right? But I grew up watching Star Trek, The Next Generation, which was the greatest Star Trek, in my humble opinion. If you're older than me, you may say, get out of here, Captain Kirk, you know, come on, the original, the Priceline guy, right? Him, that's who Captain Kirk is. You know, William Shatner. But me, I grew up watching Star Trek, the next... Any other Star, Next Generation fans in here? Two, three. Three hands. Three hands. Okay. Yeah. This is when they would shake the camera when it looked like the ship got hit and everybody would dance and, and stuff. But Data was a fascinating character because he's an, he's an android. He is an android. He is a super advanced android. And he is so advanced that... Um, it seems like he has emotions at times. And one of the, the subplots of Star Trek The Next Generation that goes throughout the series is, is Data trying to figure out kind of like what he is and his limits. And, and he has this desire, if I could say call it desire, to be human. And, and so one of the subplots is this question of what does it actually mean to be human that we see in Data's life? And, and an important part about finding this out is he, he wants to find his creator, Dr. Soong. Dr. Soong, the, the guy who made him. And, and why does he want to do that? That's woven into the, the series as well. Why? Because the hope of finding his creator, Dr. Soong, is that the assumption is that my creator knows more about why I was made. My purpose. I can discover more about who I am, the limits of what I can do. Can I be human? The idea was you have to go to your creator in order to find that out. And, you know, art imitates life. I think that there is, this, there is this understanding, or at least Paul is saying here, the truth is that there is this desire within us to find out our purpose and something more, but it lies in the creator. It lies in knowing our creator. Some people, maybe some of you, you may say, you know, it doesn't matter who made me. You know, none of that matters. I forge my own path. Nothing from the past matters. Now, you could say that, but here's a question. Why is it then that so many adoptees, even adoptees that have become really successful, rich, famous, 
who, whose birth parents could offer them nothing financially or in terms of resources in life, who have everything from the world's perspective, why are they still so interested in finding and meeting their birth parents? Why? Because they believe that the circumstances of their birth mean something. They want to know the people who, who gave birth, the people who created them, so to speak, because they believe it's a part of their story. It's a part of who they are. There's a desire with them to know and to meet the people who made them. And I believe that that is a desire that Paul is saying that, let me get rid of data here, that we have within us. Mark Twain said, the two most important days in your life are the day you are born and the day you find out why. Do, Paul's saying, do not get distracted by simply constantly keeping up with the things that are new. Ask yourself the questions about what is actually important in life. And, and contrary to our, our party animal Richard Dawkins on, on Team Atheist, Paul says this. He says, you are special. Why? He says, he quotes one of their philosophers. He says, for we are indeed his offspring, being, meaning God, God's offspring. He says that we shouldn't worship images of gold, silver, stone. Why? Why shouldn't we worship those things? Because we are God's offspring. We are made in the image of God, as the Bible says. We are like God, and nothing else in all creation is like God. Nothing else in the universe can say that they were made in the image of God. Only you and me, humanity, people, we have been made by God. And because of that, we are special. But this, is, but this is what this means. We can only find our meaning and our purpose in God. Augustine, the church father, said in his book, Confessions, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. And I'll tell you, friends, if you are looking for that rest, that meaning, that purpose in anything else aside from God, in being really successful, in, you know, that startup IPOing, in finding that, that love of your life, in, you know, going on that bucket list trip and, of yours and all those experiences. If you're looking for this in anything else but God, in anything that society holds up as a form of salvation, you are not going to find it. You will remain restless, a wanderer, looking, wondering, why not this? Maybe that. Maybe I'll try this. Why isn't anything working? Because it's in God that we find rest. Soren Kierkegaard said, life is not a problem to be solved, but a reality to be experienced. You can't solve this problem by looking here or looking there. But life is a reality that you can experience this true life only in God and in a relationship with God. So how do we go about this? How do we experience this life that Kierkegaard is talking about, that Paul is talking about? Well, a few things here as we come up to the end here of the, the message. Paul says this, um, Oh, let me actually go back one slide. If I get some help, go back one slide. Paul said this, The times of ignorance 
God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So how do we experience this life? Well, what does Paul say here? Paul says, look, there's going to be a judgment that is coming. Judgment will come one day because we have not been living the way that God has designed us to live. Because we have been looking for our purpose in things aside from God. Because we've been worshiping idols, be they other gods or money or success or a person or even ourselves. The Bible calls us sin. Us not living according to the reason that we were made. Even ourselves, even you yourself can become your own God that you worship instead of the God of the universe. Yuval Harari in his book Homo Deus wrote, having raised humanity above the beastly level of survival struggles, we will now aim to upgrade humans into gods and turn Homo sapiens into Homo Deus. Next step is we become our own gods. You see, this, this judgment for sin that is coming, it's not just for the murderers. It's not just for the rapists. It's not just for the genocidal maniacs that are out there in this world and, and those quote-unquote sinners. But it's for all of us, including us who have just been our own gods and said, God, I don't need you. God, you're there to kind of you know, grease the wheels of my life a little bit, but this is my life. And I will live for myself and the idols and the things that I am pursuing. But we were made by God for God to be his beloved children, to recognize him as God, to worship him as God, and to give our lives unto him. Because we have not done this, judgment is coming. Jesus Christ will return. And, and because of our sin... The punishment for sin is eternal separation from God. It is eternity in hell. It is separation from God because we were made by him, for him, but we have turned away from God. Sin has consequences. But thanks be to God, Paul says that this man who will come and be the judge, Jesus Christ, he died and he rose from the dead he was resurrected. Why is this so important? Why is this week so important for Christians around the world? Because we believe that Jesus died on Good Friday, not because he was a sinner, not because he was a bad person, but because we were sinners. Jesus died on the cross for the sins that he didn't deserve, but that we had committed against God because we became our own gods. And anybody who puts their faith in Jesus, who recognizes that he died for us, and that there is no way to be forgiven of my sin except for what Jesus has done for me on the cross. I can never be good enough. I can never earn my way into heaven. It was Jesus who died in my place for my sins. Anybody who puts their faith in this Jesus, we will experience forgiveness of our sin. We will become children of God. And because Jesus was resurrected on this Easter Sunday thousands of years ago, we know 
that we also will be resurrected after we die and live with God for eternity in the new heavens, in the new earth, in the paradise of God. So Paul says we need to repent. Therefore, he commands people everywhere to repent and put their faith in God. Christians, this applies to us as well. I, I, I love um, that psalm, that hymn, Come Thou Fount, that says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Our hearts are also prone to replace the God of the universe with ourselves as God or any number of things in this world as God. And, and perhaps today is a day where we examine our hearts and we once again declare that, God, we, I repent of those other gods in my life. And Lord, I lay myself upon the altar of Christ and declare once again that you are God. Friends, if you are not a Christian and you're here this morning, this is the offer, this is the invitation that Paul preached to the Athenians and that the gospel presents to each and every one of you today as well. There is meaning to life. You're missing something, and that something is God, and He wants to fill your life with His love and purpose and meaning like you have never experienced before. But you need to put your faith in the risen and resurrected Jesus Christ, who gave His life so that you could be forgiven of your sins. Now, it says here, some people mocked when they heard. Some people said we wanted to hear more. Some people became Christians and followed Paul. And perhaps those are the choices that are before you today as well. Maybe you're, you're thinking, no way. We're still glad that you're here. Maybe you're thinking, you know, I, I want to learn more. How do I know this Jesus really rose from the dead? That's, that's beyond the sermon this morning or teaching this morning. But aside, you know, how do we know anything happened in the ancient, in ancient world? It was written down, right? Nobody's got a video of it on YouTube about anybody from the ancient world. It was written down. Much was written down about Jesus, not just by his followers, if you consider that bias, but also by, by people who were not Christians and people who are anti-Christian, whether they were Josephus, the Jewish historian, or Tacitus, the Roman senator and historian, or Suetonius, the chief secretary of the Emperor Hadrian, and others who have written about this man, Jesus Christ, who was a historical figure. There is so much proof of that. And his disciples and people were willing to lay down their lives to be martyred because of what they saw, because they believed that this Jesus actually rose from the dead. One more time to close us out, our friend Richard Dawkins, he said, religion is about turning untested belief into unshakable truth through the power of institutions and the passage of time. Disagree. The person of Jesus and his resurrection is one of the most well-attested events in ancient history. Now the response, the question is, um, how will you respond to that? Friends, if you are not a Christian, the invitation, not just from me, but the invitation is from God to you this morning.
The invitation is from God. He is hoping that as your heart leads you to reach out and to look for something, you will find him. He is there. I believe he is here this morning saying this way, this way. What you're feeling in your heart, come towards me. The answer is in my son, is in Jesus, who died upon the cross for everybody, for you as well, if you would put your faith in him. And you will find what you are missing. And all you need to do is to pray and to invite Jesus into your life. How do you do that? You just, you could close your eyes. You could say it out loud. You could say it in your heart. The most important thing is that you mean it. And you say, Jesus, I believe that you are God and that you died on the cross for my sins and that there is no way to be forgiven, no way to avoid that judgment of God except through you. I can never be good enough. Lord, that's why you had to come and die on the cross for me. I believe that. I receive that for myself and I commit myself to walk with you. It'll be a journey, but I commit myself to following Jesus, to, to being a part of the church as we journey together in following this Jesus. It's just by faith. It's just by faith. That's how you begin this journey.